You're listening to the Peak Performance Podcast with Dr. Robert Barton. As a chiropractor for over 24 years and the founder of Peak Performance Spine and Sports Medicine, Dr. Barton is here to help you reach your personal peak performance by discussing topics that impact your long-term health. Let's do this. In this episode of the Peak Performance Podcast, we are discussing the issue of cervical stenosis. Uh, Cervical stenosis is a condition that uh, we have dealt with with our family for a number of years. Uh, When I was much younger, and in fact a young adult, my grandmother had surgery for this condition. I didn't really understand what it was at the time, but she had an old style surgery and she suffered some consequences with that. And then my mother had the condition and then I had the condition as well. And I'm sure other of our family members also have this condition. So in this episode, we're going to discuss what is cervical stenosis. We're going to discuss the treatment options for cervical stenosis and and my experience with uh, with how we treated and why we made the decision. And I say we, my, my mother and I had surgery for this condition and why we made the decision that we made. So let's talk first about what is stenosis. Uh, the best way to describe stenosis is that we have tubing, uh, tubing or canals in our body. The idea of stenosis is that, that tubing or canal can become clogged. And think about a pipe, you know, if you have a slow draining pipe, if you're filling a sink up with water and it won't drain all the way out or it's slow to drain out, you can say that pipe is stenosed. Uh, it basically has less area for the water to clear than it would have otherwise. And so we have different, a lot of different areas in our body where we can have stenosis. We can have stenosis of the coronary arteries, for example, and that can give us a a heart attack uh, or angina. We can have stenosis of other vessels which cause problems in our body. And we can also have stenosis of the canals or the, uh, the channels where our nerves travel through our spine. Now, the difference between the spine and those other areas of stenosis I've talked about are the fact that the spine is made of bone and those other areas, such as in the vessels, they're, of course, made of smooth muscle in the, in the case of arteries. But in the spine, it's made of bone. And when we talk about a person having stenosis, it's essentially not having the, the proper amount of room for either your nerves or your spinal cord to traverse. Now, our spine, of course, is, um, we have 24 vertebrae in our spine, or most of us do, in fact. We have seven cervical, 12 thoracic, and five lumbar. And there is a canal that goes down the middle of those vertebrae called the central canal. And that canal for the cervical and thoracic spines has our, our spinal cord located within it. Now, the lumbar spine, all the nerves hang down like spaghetti, still within the canal, but they, uh, the spinal cord actually stops around T12. In the cervical spine in particular, some people can develop a condition called stenosis. And we grade that stenosis either, you know, no stenosis or we have mild, moderate, or severe. And a normal spinal canal is anywhere from 12 to 14 millimeters. And so we start considering it stenotic when it's really under 10 is the measurement that I typically uh, go with. And what's important to know is you only need stenosis at one level on your neck. So let's just consider we have seven levels in our neck. And if you have one level that is stenosed, that's all you need. You know, if you had a 100 foot long water hose and you stepped on any part of that water hose, you're going to reduce the flow at the other end. 
So it doesn't really matter how many levels of stenosis we have. If we have it at one level or five levels, it's still a big problem. At this point, having practiced over 23 years and seeing literally thousands and thousands of MRIs and, and looking at those with patients, I think the number one factor of whether or not you get stenosis is a, is a congenital factor. Some people will never experience cervical stenosis, and then others uh, have it really from the day they're born. Now, our stenosis in, in our family, I wouldn't say was quite that bad. It was really from a combination of a few factors. One is, of course, a small spinal canal. If you have a small spinal canal, you, are, you sort of have the potential to have a situation that could get you into trouble. But you typically need other factors, such as, in my case, I had uh, disc herniations from an injury that I suffered when I was about 25 years old. I whiplashed my neck, uh, wakeboarding of all things, and I knew it immediately when I, I hit the water, uh, basically kind of got off balance, and I hit the water, and my head whipped back uh, very forcefully, and I felt my neck uh, sort of crack, uh, really, probably the, the entire neck. I had immediate pain, and I knew it, and I was I was done for the day. You know, when I woke up the next morning after the swelling really set in, it was excruciating, and I thought my neck had been broken. In fact, had you told me my neck was broken, it wouldn't have surprised me whatsoever. Now, I did have x-rays, and my neck was not, in fact, broken, but I had a severe whiplash. And so what that does, uh, when you have a whiplash, uh, it doesn't matter if it's from you know, any activity such as water skiing or wakeboarding or a car accident, which is the most common way we get whiplash, it can stretch the ligaments that connect your spine together. And in particular, where the spine comes together with the disc, we have these little soft, squishy discs uh, in between each vertebrae. And if you damage that ligament, well, that disc is under pressure. It's a two-part structure when we're young, and it has a soft, squishy center. And that soft, squishy center can begin to migrate through the damaged ligament. And when, when that happens, you start taking up additional space inside the spinal canal. And so when you have a small spinal canal to begin with, and then you have disc herniations from an injury, and then you have another predisposition for what's called ossification of the posterior longitudinal ligament, that's the ligament that sort of holds the disc in, then now you have kind of a perfect storm setting up this, this situation of cervical stenosis. So with my family, we, my grandmother had this condition as well. Uh, you know, the consequence is over time, if the cervical spine progressively pinches or cuts off the cord, your, your spinal cord, that spinal cord is essentially an extension of your brain. So it's, uh, it's got an upper motor neuron. So we have the brain and spinal cord as kind of one tissue. And then the nerve roots come off of that. And that's part of our, what we call the peripheral nervous system. So the brain and spinal cord are our central nervous system. And then the nerves are the peripheral nervous system. Well, what's interesting about uh, the, uh, this condition, and we find it relatively often in patients who did not previously know they had it. And you have to sort of watch this condition because, you know, one of the problems people find themselves in is it can sneak up on them. So if you put pressure on the spinal cord over a long period of time, the spinal cord will actually adapt. It'll almost rewire itself to deal with that pressure. And it's only at the very end of, of this process that you would notice that you had a problem. And that's because um, you know the surgeon that did our surgery um, for my, my mother and I put it this way. He uh, sort of analogized the idea that if you had, say, 100 fibers or 100 wires within your spinal uh, cord, when you were born, 
and through the damage of stenosis, that process of stenosis, let's just say that you you started sacrificing uh, greater and greater numbers of these wires. And it's only when you get below a certain threshold that you will begin to notice any decreased cord function because we have, we actually have more wires available to us than we actually need. Let's just say that at under 20, you would start seeing symptoms of uh, cord dysfunction. And so that means at 21, you would not see any symptoms whatsoever. You have plenty of wiring to keep your motion smooth. Uh, so for example, our walk becomes stiff if we don't have enough of this cord function. We can't do fine motor skills. We may not have the strength that we would otherwise have. But until you get to that, uh, say that magic 19 number, you would not have any symptoms whatsoever. And it's not terribly uncommon for a person to literally not know they have this. It's typically going to be a bigger problem from somewhere in the mid-40s all the way through the rest of your life, potentially. And if you did not know you had it, you could literally call for sneeze. You could look up to look at something like an airplane or something and do the rest of the cord in. In other words, you could damage the cord to the point where you would drop to your knees and you never walk again. And so that's a pretty serious consequence, especially for something that's been sneaking up on you for a long period of time, and you had no idea it was even there. And in fact, this happened uh, about a month ago. We had a, a lady, a nice lady, came in, and she was referred from her family doctor to us, and she was in a car accident. And so she came in to see if she was okay. And when I saw her walking down the hall, I pretty much immediately knew what I should be checking for. And when we check reflexes as doctors, you know, we, we tap on your knees with the hammer and we tap on your arms and, and we check these reflexes. And I guess most of you probably don't know why we do that. And, and a lot of doctors these days don't do it. But I think back in the day, it was done more often. Of course, we check reflexes on every one of our patients because we're actually looking for this condition. It's the, the number one condition we're looking for is whether or not you have the cervical stenosis. And what happens is when the spinal cord begins to get pressure on it over a period of time, and even if you don't know about it, even if you don't have any other symptoms or indication, your reflexes can elevate, they can become very jumpy. And we call that a plus three or a plus four reflex. And that's an indication that you may have something going on. Now, there's a couple of other reflexes as well. We have what's called a Hoffman's reflex. And there we flick the middle finger, the end of the middle finger. And we're watching to see if your thumb and your index finger sort of contract or uh, essentially kind of uh, approximate each other. It's like, almost like a claw. There's a, almost a, it's a clawing type motion. And it can be very subtle, and it can sometimes be very obvious when you flick the middle finger that this is happening. And then the other one is uh, called Babinski's reflex, and that's where we take something, an object, and we scrape it on the bottom of the foot, and then the foot will uh, kind of flex as well. So when it goes up, that's abnormal in an adult. For kids, uh, that's still normal, but in an adult, the toes should not flare up and the, and the toes should not flare out. I always use the Hoffman's reflex because it's easier to get to, but the point is that people, when we check the reflexes, if they're elevated and then you back it up and they also have a positive Hoffman's or Babinski's, then we're going to be suspicious that they could have an idiopathic or previously undiagnosed stenosis of some type and typically it's going to be in the cervical spine 
And this lady, uh, certainly she had the elevated reflexes. She also had the positive Hoffman's. And so he ordered an MRI, which is very unusual, on the very first visit. And sure enough, she came back and she had a spinal cord with an increased signal. So what that means is when you put pressure on the spinal cord over a period of time, the fibers will actually begin to liquefy. And we call that an increased signal on a T2 MRI. On an MRI, we see different uh, different types of images. We have T1, T2, fat suppressed, you know, a lot of different sequences, we call it. And on the T2 sequences, water is white. And so inside the spinal canal, we're not supposed to see any white at all. No water is supposed to be inside the spinal cord. I said canal, I meant cord. And the canal, of course, does have water and it's uh, contained within the, the dura or the fecal sac. So in the case of a T2 MRI, we have uh, water shows up as white. And if we see white within the spinal cord, it's not supposed to be there. We're supposed to have water within the fecal sac, and that is the cerebral spinal fluid that surrounds the spinal cord. But we're not supposed to see any water within the spinal cord itself. And so that means that your central nervous system is basically liquefying and that's what was happening to this lady. Her cord was losing function. She was under that proverbial 20 fibers, those 20 nerve fibers. And so her gait was very stiff as well. And another thing people don't realize is, you know, we have the, the natural process of aging. You know, as we go through life, we age and, and things sort of break down and whatnot. And one of the things that happens is our balance and our the fluidity of our motion begins to degrade. And so when we see folks in their retirement age and they look a little bit stiff, it's not always because their joints are stiff. It's because their nervous system doesn't have quite the number of fibers necessary to, to make their motions fluid. It's another reason why you should be very careful or not at all participate in getting on ladders. You know, ladders, even for a young person, are quite dangerous. But if you're on a ladder, you really have to balance yourself. And when your balance has already been degraded because you've gone through this natural process and you don't have as many, you know, signals coming to your brain, then that feedback loop doesn't happen as quickly. And so you can't adjust your balance as you could have when you were younger. And so you end up getting out of balance very quickly and falling. It happens all the time. Uh, ladders are, are super dangerous and you should definitely consider, you know, having someone else do it, you know, pay someone to do it. But the point is that your spinal cord loses the fibers over time naturally. And when you speed that up through a process of cervical stenosis, it, it happens sooner than you would otherwise have experienced. And this is what the surgeons are looking for when they begin to decide, you know, how do we treat uh, or when do we treat cervical stenosis? I think the biggest question is just that, you know, when do we treat it? When is it a problem that we can no longer ignore or that if you ignored it longer, you would suffer a long-term negative consequence? And so that's really the question that, that the surgeons try to answer. So my particular story was back in April of 2020, I began to have a, a persistent right neck and radiating pain to my right shoulder, by the back of my right shoulder. And it sort of felt at first as if if I if I tilted my head to the left and, and I could feel it more when I tilted to the left, but it felt like if it would pop, it would actually feel better. And you know, weeks went by and, and actually uh, probably a month went by and it literally did not feel better. At times it was very excruciating and at night it was much, much worse. 
So I began to um, worry that it was a little bit more serious because it just it felt like muscle, but it just wasn't going away. And so I went and got a repeat MRI. So I had I had, a, I had an MRI about three or four years ago, and then I'd had my first MRI of the cervical spine about 10 years ago. So I knew I had this condition, the cervical stenosis condition, and I also had what's called foraminal stenosis. So those nerve roots that come off of the spinal cord, they actually exit at each level of our spine, and those holes are called foramen. And we can have foraminal stenosis just like we can have central canal stenosis. And the foraminal stenosis can, most of the time, it's either disc herniation or bone that's creating, or spondylosis we call it, but bone that's creating the foraminal stenosis. And so I knew I had central canal stenosis as well as foraminal stenosis. When the MRI came back and it was much worse, it was obvious that this wasn't just going to go away. Uh, So what was going on was my spinal cord was being shoved all the way to the left-hand side of my spinal canal. And the cord, uh, the AP dimension, so we call that anterior to posterior dimension. So if you look at a cross-section of the spinal canal and we measure inside the spinal canal from the back to the front or front to back, that normally should be that 12 to 14 millimeter measurement. And mine was measuring six millimeter, I believe it was six millimeters, six to seven millimeters in spots, but the spinal cord was being shoved all the way to the left-hand side and it was pretty much filled in with a calcified posterior longitudinal ligament. And so that was taking up space and it was basically, it certainly had gotten worse, but it was taking up space in my spinal canal that I didn't have to begin with because I had a small spinal canal to begin with. And it was tethering or stretching my right C5 nerve root. So the pain that I was feeling in the shoulder blade area was the actual tethering of the right C5 nerve root. And that's why when I you know, tilted my head to the left, it felt like it was pulling and it certainly was. And it came to the point where I could not turn my chin to the left. And I play golf as recreation. It's one of the only sports that I can play without injuring myself. And so I came to the point in sometime in May where I couldn't play golf anymore. And when I turned, when I tried to take the, the club back, it would further tether or stretch that nerve root. And it hurt a lot. So I, I pretty much had to give that up. And then probably sometime in May, uh, May to, you know, mid-May to late May, I had lost the ability to lift uh, about you know five pounds in front of me. So if I took, you know, I was working out and I was still going to work out, you know, pretty much doing all these things. But if I tried to lift a, a dumbbell, a five-pound dumbbell in front of my body, I couldn't do it. It it, it was that weak. So for me, I began a search of trying to figure out, well, how am I going to deal with this? Uh, certainly, it's it's beyond conservative measures. There's no way for us to conservatively increase the size of the spinal canal, the inside of the spinal canal, especially when it is due to bone. If it's due to spondylosis or bone, then your body will not resorb that. Now, if it's due to soft disc herniation, we have seen many, many cases, thousands of cases, in fact, Uh, We've been able to uh, really take pressure off of the disc and the disc sort of heals. And we've seen disc herniations go from very large, anywhere from, you know, I consider a five millimeter herniation in the cervical spine big, but we've seen them five to seven millimeters in the cervical spine go down to almost nothing over time. And so it's important to note that the body does want to heal, but sometimes in that healing process, it can calcify the tissue and then when that when that tissue is calcified or what we call a low signal on a T2 MRI, 
it is not going to go away. It's just basically going to calcify more and more over time. And so when the surgeons get in there and it's a low signal on uh, on a T2 weighted MRI, they uh, they'll talk about that. They'll talk about you know calcification. It's very hard tissue. It's just it's just not going to go anywhere. And so that's what this tissue was for me on the MRI. And then as I said, the question becomes. Well, what do we do about this? You know, how do we treat this surgically? What are the options? What are the pros? What are the cons? Uh, that type of thing. And so, as I mentioned, my grandmother had a surgery for cervical stenosis, and certainly the one of the options was what was called a cervical laminectomy. So we have those uh, little bumps off the back of our spine. If you reach back with your uh, finger and kind of feel the back of your neck, and certainly all the way down to the base of your neck, everyone has this little bump there, and they're always concerned about it. They don't want it to get too big, but that's called the vertebral prominence. And those other bumps that you feel along your cervical spine or your spinous processes and a structure called the lamina basically kind of come into and form the spinous process. And so when they do a laminectomy, a full laminectomy, they basically cut along each one of the lamina at several levels, whatever levels need to be uh, removed, and they remove the entire back half of the spine. So the the spinous process goes away, um, a large portion of the lamina goes away, and they leave the facets. The facets are where the vertebrae basically kind of fit together and articulate with each other. And they have to leave about one-third of the facet in order for it to be a functional facet. If they take more than that, it becomes a kind of a non-functional facet. But when they take that off, like in the old school, there's nothing for the muscles to attach onto, and it's not uncommon for the patient's head to fall forward. And so you may have seen people out in the public and their heads sort of fall forward. And if they, if you look in the back of their neck and they have kind of a, a groove or a sulcus, we call it, in the back of their neck, then they likely had a cervical laminectomy for stenosis and their head fell forward because there was nothing for the tissue to attach uh, to in order to keep the head from falling forward. Now, you have to realize that your head weighs about anywhere from 10 to 14 pounds, depending on how big your, big your head is. So it's a quite heavy structure. And if your posture is not right, you have something called torque or lever arm that basically if, you're, if, your, head, if your head posture gets forward, then gravity is pulling down and it, uh, it will pull down you know, conceivably harder and harder over time. And when we have everything and it's working properly with all of our muscles and bones and whatnot, we can easily just kind of pull our head back and, and maintain that posture. But if you don't have those connections back there, it's not as easy as just contracting your posterior neck muscles and bringing your head back into alignment. Now, we see people's head out of alignment all the time. It's one of the major reasons that our necks hurt because the more it's out of alignment from a, from a gravitational standpoint, the harder your body has to work to hold it up. And your trapezius muscles, which are those kind of the shoulder muscle that's um, just above your shoulder that kind of goes into your neck, that muscle can become very hard over time. And what I call fibrotic, it just basically means that it toughens up over a period of time because it's been under stress. And that can be from forward head posture. So forward head posture is a consequence, potentially, of a full laminectomy. Now, They've tried different things. The surgeons have tried different things over the years in order to kind of counter this known consequence of forward head posture. And one of the things that they do is they confuse. They can, they can do various types of fusions. And if they do a full laminectomy from the back and, and then they fuse all of the facets together, it does 
one thing, one of the things that it does is it keeps your head from potentially falling forward, so it reduces that chance. However, what you're left with is a very stiff neck. And they've done studies on this, and they know that patients aren't all that satisfied long term, you know, with the fact that their necks are now so stiff. They can't, it's hard to drive, it's hard to, you know, talk to people. You have to turn your whole body instead of turning your just your head. And I can tell you that it, it would be quite inconvenient. You know, since I had the surgery that I had, which I'm going to talk about here uh, shortly, but I haven't been able to turn my neck because I'm not supposed to, and I wouldn't want to have to live like this my whole life. So I, I know that having a multi-level fusion to keep the head from falling forward wasn't really a great option. Now, if they do the surgery from the front and you can treat cervical stenosis to some degree by only going in from the front, but what they do is they have to evacuate the disc in order to access the, the spinal canal. And when they remove that disc in order to access the spinal canal as well as the foramen, the, the, where the channels where the nerves come out, they have to replace that with something. So they typically replace it with uh, either bone. Uh, back in the day, it was they would take bone from your hip, which was very painful, by the way. And these days, they tend to take uh, either cadaver bone or they have other little implants that could put in there that your bone will grow into. And then they put a plate on the front to kind of secure everything so that as the bone heals, that uh, everything is stable because you don't want your neck moving around while your bone is trying to heal. Now, that particular surgery is very well tolerated. It's not very painful, but some types of central canal stenosis cannot be treated just from the front. So uh, now, and it also depends on how many levels of fusion that you're looking at. So if you have, in my case, uh, when the first surgeon I went to see is a neurosurgeon, and he recommended a three-level ACDF. Uh, so that's anterior cervical discectomy infusion is what that stands for. And so that would be four of the vertebrae uh, sort of made as one. And so three of the levels would have been evacuated from the front, uh, cleared out as much of the bone material and ligament material, all that uh, low signal, dark stuff that we saw in the MRI. They would clear that out, come in from the front, and then it would lock everything together. Now, as a chiropractor and practicing for, for 23 years now, I cannot tell when a person comes in and they have a one-level fusion. If, if I'm working with their neck in some way, I cannot tell that they have a one-level fusion. I, I, don't, I don't sense the stiffness. If they have a two-level fusion, it kind of depends on the person. Uh, sometimes I can't tell at all because they're pretty flexible. And then other times, maybe a little bit, that they're a little bit stiff. However, with a three-level fusion, uh, my experience is that I can always tell. And I've had a number of patients who have come in with three-level fusions. So I knew personally that I didn't want a three-level fusion. I didn't want my neck to be that stiff. You know, in playing golf, for example, you can't turn. Uh, you know, that's very, you need a lot of neck motion in order to play golf. And if I can't turn my, sh my shoulder to my chin or even close to it, it's not going to be a very enjoyable experience. And I'm relatively young. I'm 49 years old. So that did not sound that good. And, and so I did not want to pursue the three-level fusion. Not if I didn't have to. The second option that I was presented with uh, through another surgeon that I've worked with for quite some time was a three-level disc replacement. And so we call that an arthroplasty. ACDF for the fusion, arthroplasty for the disc replacement. And I've had a couple of patients who have had multiple-level disc replacements 
And I can tell you that their motion is really good. I don't, you know, we don't manipulate uh, their necks when they have disc replacements, but we still can stretch it gently and just restore and reset the, the function. And their necks are very supple, very loose, and they've typically done quite well. And so that sounded pretty good, but I needed a, a three-level. I was offered either a two-level with a base fusion or a, just a three-level disc replacement which is what we call off-label. So the FDA approves two levels of disc replacements, but not three in the U.S. And so I was just going to pay for the third one and, and have it put in. So I would have three artificial discs in my neck. And on doing research with that, I found instances where the, um, a patient could dislocate the artificial disc doing pretty innocuous activities. And as a chiropractor and a, and a busy one at that, I was very concerned about the uh, the fact that I essentially jump up and down on people all day long. And one lady in particular was lifting a bag of laundry or a basket of laundry and she felt something shift in her neck and that disc, uh, that disc shifted and it dislocated and she had to have that revised. And that was very concerning because if with three of those things, only one needs to shift in order to really cause a problem, I did not... I just wasn't comfortable with that. I thought I was too hard on my neck or I, I felt, I feel that I'm too hard on my neck with uh, the activities that I do and especially my job to do that. Now, if I was an accountant or if I was someone who just didn't do that much, I, I think that could have been a very good option. However, as hard as I am, I just didn't think that was a great option. Now, what's interesting is my mother had a, uh, she has a, this very small spinal canal as well. Her spinal canal AP dimension had gone down to four millimeters. It was very, very small, and her cord was certainly being compressed. However, it was happening over a long period of time, and she was not having symptoms of this yet. And so she had been to several doctors, several surgeons as well, and they all said to a person, if it's not causing any problems right now, if you can walk okay and your fingers work okay and you have fine motor skills, then you don't have to do anything. Wait until it gets worse. And the problem with that is I've had some people who have come in and they've had cord dysfunction. Let's just say kind of going back to that, you know, 20 fibers analogy that I gave. It's not really that. It's, it's not like you get 20, 20 nerves. But the point is, if you have the, the 19 and you begin to have symptoms of cord dysfunction, when you take the pressure off of the spinal cord at that point, it doesn't go back to 25 now, it can reverse a little bit, and I had several conversations with surgeons about this. However, the, the experience that I had with patients is, you know, once you take the pressure off the spinal cord, it, the spinal cord doesn't necessarily recover. And so you're sort of stuck with what you have at that point. Now, the good news is it won't get worse at the same level that it would have had you not had the surgery. But the bad news is it just would not necessarily reverse. And so the problem with waiting in, you know, with a four millimeter spinal canal and a very highly compressed spinal cord, you take the chance of sneezing one day and uh, literally dropping to your knees and never walking again, possibly looking up in an airplane, as I said, possibly getting into a automobile accident of some sort. And, you know, it doesn't mean that every accident would have paralyzed my mother, but I would argue because of her small spinal canal that an accident could paralyze her before it paralyzed someone else. And so that is hard to know about and kind of go through life and just say, well, when do I, you know, when do I 
proceed with this treatment because the treatment, especially if you do the old style surgeries with the full laminectomy or the uh, even the fusions, the treatment's not much better than the condition. And that's that's the hard thing about this particular condition, the cervical stenosis condition, is the treatments aren't much better than the condition itself until you start talking about paralyzation. Once you start talking about that, almost anything is better than paralyzation. So we had these two recommendations, or I had these two recommendations. She was told to wait, and then we found a doctor out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and his name was Dr. Jeff Cantor, C-A-N-T-O-R, and he had a series of educational videos on YouTube where he talked about using a, a tool called the Masonics Bone Scalpel. So that's uh, Masonics, M-I-S-O-N-I-X. It's an ultrasonic cutting device that basically vibrates. So they're basically dull blades and they vibrate at 22,000 uh, vibrations a second. And if you put them on something soft, it does not hurt it whatsoever. But if you put it on anything hard, such as bone or even plastic, then it kind of slices right through it like a hot knife through butter. And I've been in many of these surgeries. I did a, that neurosurgery rotation when I was in school. I've uh, participated in many, many other surgeries over the years uh, just to kind of expose myself to the process. And I know that in surgery, you know, you have a couple of choices to, to get through bone. You have a high-speed drill, which you can only use in large spaces. So you can't use that right next to something that's delicate because if you wrap a delicate structure up in this high-speed drill, you're going to damage that structure permanently, more than likely. And so the other ways that the surgeons do it is they take uh, really a series of chisels and, you know, kind of sharp edge devices. And, and much like you would cut an apple, if you wanted to slice an apple in half, you're not going to grab that apple in your hand and then take a knife and cut through the apple towards your hand. You're basically going to take your hand out of the equation. You're going to either set the apple down on a, you know, some sort of a surface and then cut through it but you're not going to cut the apple into your hand. And so when they do the surgeries, they basically take these tools, these chisels, uh, curettes, and, and different types of um, uh, instruments. They will put it on the bone, and then they'll kind of scrape away from the nerve or away from anything uh, critical. And that way, they don't damage the structures uh, around there. And so obviously, nerves... Uh, in the cervical spine, we have the nerves, we have the spinal cord itself, and then the vertebral artery, which you never really want to see if you're in surgery. You don't want to put your eyeballs on the vertebral artery. But the point is that if you're having to manually evacuate all this bone and you have a three-level situation, it takes a long time to manually just get in there and, and evacuate that bone. So I knew this to be the case. And I really wanted to make sure that, you know, we, we got everything that we possibly could. I didn't want to ever have to have another surgery knowing that I was uh, headed for surgery. And so we sent our films over to Dr. Canner and he looked at them and, and he, uh, you know, he basically, you know, met with us via Zoom. And we were candidates for what he did and what he does that's different. And, you know, I did a lot of research on this on this doctor leading up to this. But what he does is he does a combined approach where he goes in from the front and he clears out the things from the front that he can get to. And then from the back, he uses the Masonic's bone scalpel and he, he basically you know does the surgery and all the bone work with this device. And he's able to kind of get that device through an, a process called back cutting. He can kind of jut it from the bottom up and like the C3 
arch that comprises the spinal cord, he can kind of get in there and plastically reshape or enlarge the spinal canal there. And then the very bottom vertebrae, the C7 vertebrae, he can kind of go in from the top and, and get that one. So you can plainly see that on the after x-rays. And then the other uh, lamina, they do what's called a laminoplasty. And he cuts halfway through on one side, and then he cuts all the way through on the other side, and he props them up. It essentially enlarges the spinal canal and then puts spacers in between the uh, where he cut all the way through, and it basically props up the bone to create a larger spinal canal. And that's definitely a lot to go through. The posterior portion of the surgery, the, the back of the neck portion of the surgery for my mother and I were, and certainly that was the most painful. When he puts all that back together, uh, he has to very tightly tie everything back together. And so the uh, first, really, probably the first month after surgery, I couldn't, I couldn't nod my head at all. It was, it was just completely locked in that position because he's trying to make sure that as everything grows back to the bone, that the head doesn't fall forward. If the head falls forward before the tissue reattaches to the bone, then you have the same problem as with uh, the previous surgery that my grandmother had and her head did fall forward and, and she suffered with that for the rest of her life, which ended up being about 25 years worth of her head having fall forward. So the laminoplasty, the posterior approach plus the anterior approach was what we went with. And I think that was a superior approach for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, for my mother, uh, for example, you know, she had delayed the other treatments, uh, such, such as a three-level fusion or a full laminectomy from the back, uh, some of the things I talked about, because again, the treatment had a lot of consequence. And so she was just content with living with what she had, but, you know, didn't want to move forward with the surgical options. And again, she wasn't having a lot of symptoms of the cord compression. However, she was at four millimeters and it was, it was very, very severe. And she suffered with headaches a lot. So, you know, she had she has headaches and has had them her whole, whole life. And so the question then became, well, is the cervical stenosis contributing to the headache at all? And so, you know, it, it was worth pursuing this combined approach where they did the laminoplasty plus only a two-level fusion from the front because she would be able to preserve, you know, more motion in her neck and then also enlarge the spinal canal from the back. And then for me... The big factor was the idea that, you know, I wouldn't again have the three-level fusion from the front, so I would maintain a little bit more cervical movement and kind of the same, you know, uh, having the spinal canal enlarged from the back allowed me to deal with that situation kind of to its fullest degree. I, I didn't feel like after we enlarged it that the central canal stenosis would ever advance to a point where it would become you know, an issue that needed surgical intervention again. So I think the combined approach was the way to kind of, you know, have it done and not have to have it redone in the future. Now we do have to consider a condition called adjacent segment disease. And what that means is when you fuse one or multiple vertebrae together, there is additional biomechanical stress placed above and below that, and you can accelerate the aging process of those other levels. And so we have to be, you know, considerate of that. And, you know, it's certainly uh, something that, you know, we can't really get away from. But hopefully that'll be pretty well preserved. And if the posture is good and generally the function is good, then we can, you know, reduce that chance as much as possible over a period of time. So 
With that, you know, in summary, when a person has cervical stenosis, there are many different options that you can entertain in a lot of different approaches. And I would encourage someone to to have a conversation with multiple doctors and really understand as much as possible all the different options. This is a conversation I've had with many, many people over the years in the office. And now I have this this third option, you know, this, this combined approach option that, that we did. And I'm not sure how many doctors around the country do this, this combined approach option, but so far we are both uh, very happy. Uh, it's certainly no walk in the park to get over a surgery like this. And as you can hear, my voice is affected because of the surgery, because of our experience with this. But that should come back over time. And uh, But we're overall very pleased with it. I think the biggest thing that could potentially cause me not to be as pleased, and that has nothing to do with the surgery or the, or the execution of the surgery, it's just this uh, adjacent segment disease issue, and then potentially not being able to move my neck as freely as I would like. Of course, we're going to it's going to be somewhat stiff because I have the two-level fusion, but that is yet to be determined, and I'll know that probably within about three or four months. I'll get to start my rehabilitation process once we determine that through a CT scan that the bone is actually healed, and then once I start that rehab process, we'll see how much motion I get back. And those are the really the only uh, implications that I'm concerned about is the adjacent segment disease and then the lack of motion moving forward. So I hope this gives you a better understanding of cervical stenosis, you know, what you have to think about, what are some of the surgical options, you know, when, when to think about treating it, you know, the fact that we can't treat it, especially when it's low-grade signal through conservative means, this is not something we can treat conservatively. And hopefully this gives you a little bit of insight with regard to this particular condition and With that, I look forward to the next episode and I will talk to you then. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Peak Performance Podcast with Dr. Robert Barton. Visit Peak Performance Spine and Sports Medicine at peakclinics.com. That's peakclinics.com. Thanks again for listening.